Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. Well, today marks week 10 in a 10-week series on the book of Judges, and that's saying something, folks. I know there have been several times throughout the years that I have applauded you for taking on some of the lesser known, more problematic stories in the Bible, but 10 weeks on the book of Judges, who does that? John Kelvin, the namesake of my alma mater and the theological giant of the Reformed Church that that I was born into and shaped me. Well, Kelvin preached and wrote his way through the entire Bible. He wrote 47 verse-by-verse commentaries on specific books. He published 12 anthologies of sermons. In addition to his work on philosophy and antiquity, he also authored some of the most detailed and exhaustive theological treatises ever written, capped off by his magnum opus, a four-book, 80-chapter volume entitled Kelvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. The guy knew a thing about the Bible, and yet... One of the very few books he never officially wrote on or preached on was the book of Judges. And apparently when he was asked why, he simply said that others, particularly the Reformed theologian Martin Bucer, had done such a masterful job on it that there was no room for improvement. The point of it all is not to put down Calvin. So he applied more discipline, devotion, energy to the Bible than I've applied to anything ever in my life. The point is simply to name that even for someone as exhaustive as him, this book doesn't get read very often. And so well done. You guys have been great. Now we are to conclude the story of our final judge, Samson. A quick recap. The Israelites, the people of God, have been acting a fool for a couple of generations now. They've been swirling around in this downward cycle of the judges. It's gotten so bad that, that lately it's been hard to tell who's on whose side and who's the villain and, and who's the judge. The final chapters are marked by this phrase, and the people did whatever they saw fit in their own eyes. And in case you missed it last week, their own eyes lead them astray. Samson is supposed to come and fix things once and for all. He's a Nazarite set aside from birth, chosen by God but his eyes keep leading him to to violence, to women, to revenge. Who doesn't like a fresh start? He's learned the lessons of his youth. Now it's time for him to step into this role as chosen one. Let's read the dramatic conclusion to the story of Samson. Starting Judges 16, starting in verse one. One day Samson traveled to Gaza While there, he saw a prostitute and had sex with her. He hasn't learned his lessons yet. 
We keep reading. The word spread among the people of Gaza. Samson came here. So they circled around and waited in ambush for him all night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night long, thinking, we'll kill him at the first light in the morning. But Samson slept only half the night. He got up in the middle of the night, grabbed the doors of the city gates and the two gate posts and pulled them up with the bar still across them. He put the gate on his shoulder and carried it to the top of the hill that is beside Hebron. Sometime after this, in the Sorek Valley, Samson fell in love with a woman whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines confronted her and said to her, seduce him and find out what gives him such great strength and what we can do to overpower him so that we can tie him up and make him weak. Then we'll each pay you 1,100 silver pieces. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me what gives you such great strength and how you can be tied up and made weak. Samson replied to her, well, if someone ties me up with seven fresh bowstrings that aren't dried out, I'll become weak. I'll be like any other person. So the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven bowstrings that weren't dried out and she tied him up with them. Well, an ambush was waiting for her signal in the inner room. She called out to him, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And he snapped the bowstrings like threads of fiber snapped when it touches a flame. So the secret of his strength remained unknown. Then Delilah said to Samson, you made a fool out of me and lied to me. Please tell me how you can really be tied up. He replied to her, well, if someone ties me up with new ropes that have never been used for work, I'll become weak. I'll be like any other person. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him up with them. Then she called out to him, Samson, the Philistines are on you. Once again, an ambush was waiting in the inner room, yet he snapped them from his arms like thread. Delilah said to Samson, up to now, you've made a fool out of me and lied to me. Tell me how you can be tied up. He responded to her, well, if you weave the seven braids of my hair into fabric on a loom, pull it tight with a pen, then I'll become weak. I'll be like any other person. So she got him to fall asleep, wove the seven braids of his hair into the fabric on a loom, and pulled it tight with a pen. Then she called out to him, Samson, the Philistines are on you. He woke up from his sleep and pulled loose the pin, the loom, and the fabric. Delilah said to him, how can you say you love me when you won't trust me? Three times now you've made a fool out of me and not told me what gives you such great strength. She nagged him with her words day after day and begged him until he became worn out to the point of death. So he told her his whole secret. He said to her, no razor has ever touched my head because I've been a Nazarite for God from the time I was born. If my head is shaved, my strength will leave me and I'll become weak. I'll be like every other person. When Delilah realized that he had told her his whole secret, 
She sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come one more time, for he has told me his whole secret. The rulers of the Philistines came up to her and brought the silver with them. She got him to fall asleep with his head on her lap. Then she called a man and had him shave off the seven braids of Samson's hair. He began to weaken, and his strength had left him. She called out, Samson, the Philistines are on you. He woke up from his sleep and thought, I'll escape just like the other times and shake myself free. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him, plucked out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze chains and he worked the grinding mill in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again, right after it had been shaved. The rulers of the Philistines gathered together to make a great sacrifice to their god Dagon and to hold a celebration. They cheered, our god has handed us Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, our god has handed us our enemy, the very one who devastated our lands and killed so many of our people the height of the celebration, they said, call for Samson so he can perform for us. So they called Samson from the prison and he performed in front of them. Then they had him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who led him by hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that hold up the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was filled with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 more men and women were on the roof watching Samson perform. And Samson called out to the Lord, Lord God, please remember me. Make me strong just this once more, God, so I can have revenge on the Philistines. Just one act of revenge for my two eyes. Samson grabbed the two central pillars that held up the temple. He leaned against one with his right and the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He strained with all his might. The temple collapsed on the rulers and all the people who were in it. So it turns out that he killed more people in his death than he did during his life. That's Samson, the chosen one, the Nazarite, the one the angel of the Lord spoke of, the one who was supposed to lead the people back to God. His promised and foretold life summarized in one sentence, right? So it turns out he killed more people in his death than he did during his life. Have you ever put all your hope in one person, one election, one piece of technology or policy, only to realize it didn't fix everything? In fact, it's hard to tell if it really fixed anything. Samson, he's the closest thing we have to a superhero in the Bible, and for what? A good laugh? 
He's supposed to offer corrective vision to a people who are doing whatever they saw fit in his own, their own eyes, and, and yet his eyes led him astray. And, and in a twist of irony, he ends up losing them at the end. He's a strong man with a weakness for women, a, a strong man that, as his song says, can stack up bodies with a donkey bone, but can't seem to withstand the, the nagging of his wives. Now, it's supposed to be a little funny. You catch the repetition in it. It's supposed to be a little unrealistic, but you can't help yourself but ask the question, why? Why any of it? Why tell the story of Samson? Why tell the story of Ehud, Deborah, and Jael? Why tell the story of Gideon, Jotham, Abimelech, Jephthah? Why read the book of Judges? Right, 10 weeks, 10 weeks with the book of Judges, all to feel like the people of God are in a worse spot than when we started. Why? And maybe even more so, I find myself asking, why would anybody write these stories down in the first place? Why not clean them up a bit, change some of the details? Why not paint a slightly more faithful picture of the Israelites? Why not summarize the entire book in a couple vague and artificially vulnerable sentences that, that focus on how we've learned our lesson? and are now amazing. If you were the ancestors of, of Abimelech and Jephthah, right, maybe even Gideon and Samson, wouldn't you try to keep these stories on the down low? I kinda get why Jael's great-great-granddaughters might like hearing the story of, of her putting a tent stake through an army commander's head, but the rest of them, why do it? Why write them down? I think the answer is, despite all their obvious flaws, right, their embarrassing moments, their disastrous outcomes, despite it all, the Israelites were remarkably committed to recording honest stories. At times, even brutally honest stories. And friends, I think that's exactly why we should read them. We need honest stories in our life. We need honest stories in which the failures, the atrocities, the dark side of our ancestry isn't covered up or, or whitewashed by only focusing on the, the heroes who, who stopped doing the evil things. The Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, they go through a really dark time in the book of Judges. And, and if we're being honest, they have more really dark times a-coming that will eventually lead to them being exiled from the promised land and, and almost destroyed. But despite their mistakes, the failures of judgments, the lack of of morality, the widespread violence and apostasy, despite it all, they remain honest. They write it down in great detail. 
right? Even the worst parts of their past, their most famous heroes like King David and King Solomon, even they are not protected from having their dirty laundry aired out. And not only do they write them down, but they create religious practices, right? Around having the entire community gather to read them, to hear them, even memorize them so as to get better, so as to learn from the past. While we now know Israel's dark side a bit more, I can't help but wonder if there are parts of our own story, our nation's past, our ancestors' stories that that we neglect to read, that have not been as meticulously written down and honestly told and retold? Have we heard about the Trail of Tears in 1838? The Sand Creek Massacre in 1864, the Wilmington Coup in 1898, they all took place on American soil within the span of 60 years. Or how about some of the laws, acts, papal edicts that have shaped the world the way we know it? Like Pope Alexander VI authorizing and empowering Spain and Portugal to colonize, convert, and enslave the Americas. King Louis XIII legalizing the transatlantic slave trade or his successor Louis XIV subsidizing it literally paying incentives for every slave that was relocated to a colony. How about the irreparable damage and violence resulting from Act 12 being implemented by the fine Christian folk of Virginia's General Assembly in 1662? And I'll stop because we get the point. The brutal honesty found in the book of Judges challenges us to question how much of our own story How much of our own past, our own dark sides get covered up and never told again? And I know that some might say there's no need to live in the past or reopen old wounds. In fact, maybe you've heard this one before. People like to say the only way to move forward is to forget about those things and focus on the present. To be solution-oriented without getting bogged down with mistakes that we can't change anyways. That's not going to work. It's definitely not going to work for those who are victims. And truthfully, it's not going to work for those who, who ended up ahead. Because in reality, when stories get that dark, when the evil is that prevalent, when the cycle of the judges turns into a nosedive, No one comes out ahead. Knowing the book of Judges, knowing the dark stories of our ancestors and our nation, it helps us truly understand how we got into the situations that we find ourselves in. The past, it sheds light on the present. And and if we can face it honestly, even with brutal honesty, It will help us from repeating the parts of the past that we, as a people, publicly choose to renounce 
as dark, as violent, as evil, as never to be done again. And we can't just renounce it once and move on. We need to teach these stories, reflect on these stories, keep these stories in circulation. Sure, superheroes and and heroes in general, they're awesome. But we need to keep in mind and shed light on the circumstances that, that cause need for heroes in the first place. And it's far more personal than that too. Like the various judges, we all have uh, stories, even traits that we're not proud of, right? We all have dark sides, shadow sides, things that are in us, but would never find their way onto our Facebook profile. I have a bit of a temper one that I've worked really hard to control, conceal, but it's, it's still there. Not to the extent of Samson, <laughs> but I still find myself getting charged, a little worked up, vengeful even from time to time. It's not a part of me I'm thrilled with, but it's a part of me all the same, and, and I've come to understand how it got there. I've come to develop the ability to be a non-judgmental observer of it, and I've come to accept and even appreciate it as it is part of what it's like to be me. How about you? What's your dark side look like? Is it the deceptiveness of Ehud? Is it the taking things into your own hand, like jail, the self-loathing and insecurity of Gideon, the insatiable ambition of Abimelech, the, the talking without thinking, the making promises you probably shouldn't make, like Jephthah. I don't know what your dark side looks like, but I know you have one because you're human. And because at some point you've been hurt. These stories from the the book of Judges, from our own ancestry and, and past, these are stories of real humans, real people with real issues around violence, sex, shame, insecurity, ambition. They're complex characters who have been hurt and and who hurt people. And in a way, they are us, right? And we are them. Samson is us. We are Samson. These dark personal stories are universal stories helping us to handle our own past, our own darkness. There is liberation, healing, Wholeness to be found in the honest awareness of our true self with all the good and all the bad that comes with it. Now here's the thing, there is still more in the book of Judges. The final three chapters are a little too violent, too graphic, and just too much for me to read and worship, which is saying something because I've read some pretty messed up stories from this pulpit. 
There's too much. I'm not comfortable reading them publicly. But I encourage you to go there at some point. Chapter 19, 20, 21. Finish the book, even though it's a, it's a little hard. And while you're at it, when you're in that space, try learning a story or two about your ancestors' involvement in colonizing Africa or the Americas. Learn a story or two about the early American settlers' treatment of indigenous people or their treatment of slaves for two and a half centuries. They're all doing it. There's plenty of material. As we sure had plenty of material with the book of Judges. We gave it 10 weeks. I could have easily given it another 10, but here we are. So how do you wrap up a book like the Judges? How do you bring conclusion to a story that just kept getting worse? I propose we give thanks. I propose we give thanks for the humble and honest people who took the time to record their blunders. I propose that we give thanks for the generations of people who thought these stories were worth preserving and even passing on to their kids. I propose that we give thanks for the early translators who didn't water it down or clean it up. I propose that we give thanks for those who have found inspiration in the Bible's brutal honesty and have taken time to record their own stories, even their dark ones. Friends, I propose we give thanks for the book of Judges, for it is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.